0: in Crime is a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Katie Barrow Grint is a superintendent with the UK's Thames Valley Police. She is currently the head of specialist operations for Thames Valley, running covert policing for the force. We talk about her work developing an internal evidence based policing journal becoming the inaugural editor-in-chief of the College of Policing's publication Going Equipped, and being a lead on WeCops, a popular UK policing weekly Twitter debate forum. Hi, I'm Jerry Ratcliffe. As usual, we start with a quick guest theme update. The one you just heard for this episode is pretty old school, being for a British television police drama that started in 1980 and ran for five years, encompassing 88 episodes across six seasons. Set up north in Lancashire, like the US series Cagney and Lacey that started a year later, this series was innovative for starring a female lead in a police leadership role, tackling both crime and misogynism. By the way, the guest theme for the last episode was the US version of the Danish hit series The Killing. And if you haven't figured out the guest theme for this episode, I'll tell you next month. Secondly. As this is episode 36, that means the podcast is pretty much three years old. My thanks to all of my marvellous guests over that time, and most of all to everyone for listening. The podcast is now getting more than 40,000 downloads a year, though I'm not really sure why. Fortunately, I have smart guests. You just have to put up with my nonsense every now and again. Tolerating my nonsense this month is Superintendent Katie Barrowgrint. Superintendent Barragrint has been with Thames Valley Police since 2000, during which time she has worked frontline response, CID, neighbourhood policing, child abuse investigation, surveillance and strategic development. She is the Forces Head of Specialist Operations, and runs their covert policing activities. She has a degree in Sociology from the London School of Economics, and a Masters in Police Leadership and Management from Warwick Business School. She specialised in the area of policing domestic abuse, but is probably best known for managing Thames Valley's policing journal, being editor-in-chief for the College of Policing's Going Equipped publication, and is one of the leads for the popular Wednesday evening WeCops British Policing Twitter debate. Don't forget the hashtag. We cover all of this in the following chat. Katie is a marathon runner in black belt and karate, but when I caught up with her online, she was getting into a glass of wine which is frankly a minimum prerequisite for talking to me. Just ask my girlfriend, ex-wife, family, colleagues, acquaintances, friends, random strangers. So here we are, 8pm your time, a couple of glasses of wine Try in. to think so. what's
1: going to happen. It is 8 o'clock here, the kids have gone to bed. I've only just started <laughs> drinking, don't worry.
0: well after Covid or just, just started <laughs> just drinking this just, evening? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, nothing else to spend your money on. <laughs>
0: So I saw that you're also a a black belt in karate, aren't you?
1: I am, yeah. I haven't practised for a long time, but I have got a black belt in Wadaroo and uh, I was English silver medalist for sparring.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Fighting once upon a time in my youth.
0: That's fantastic. Though I have to say the style of karate does sound like a small town in New South Wales.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But good fun and... and, uh, I really loved it when I did it. I ought to go back and do it again.
0: What I find interesting is when you meet so many people who are at the higher ranks in things like policing and academia, they're also quite driven to get there, but they're also driven in other areas of their life. They don't just dabble in karate. They go right the way through to black belt. And that's what makes it so difficult catching up with them for podcast interviews. People like yourself is like, well, that's great, but I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And I'm I'm writing a book on domestic violence. We're running WeCops. So tell me a little bit about WeCops for... People who are not in the UK.
1: WeCOps is a Twitter debate that we have every couple of weeks on a Wednesday evening at 9pm.
0: And exactly how many seconds does it take before it deteriorates into you all shouting at each other? Because what Titter's all
1: about, isn't it? It doesn't, absolutely. Did I
0: just say Titter? <laughs> I think I meant Twitter.
1: It's actually a very useful debating forum for officers and staff, together with higher-ranking officers, academics, members of the community, and we don't get into trolling. It's about being creative.
0: I think you've missed the entire point of Twitter then. Maybe,
1: maybe, but it it works and we have good fun and it's run by eight of us, seven cops and one academic all doing it voluntarily on top of our day jobs. We're here just to try and make policing better and make improvements and make sure that the good stuff that goes on gets shared because I think that's where sometimes we fall down.
0: The times I've dipped into it, it's been quite fantastic, and such a range of opinions and people. Do you have any sense of the kind of numbers that are engaging with it?
1: We have about twelve thousand followers, which it doesn't sound you know huge when you look at some people, but that
0: really is very good. We
1: only go for an hour, and we've had over three million reach in that hour for some of our debates. So, just as an example, we had. A chat on diversity and recruitment in policing a few weeks ago and and the policing minister here in the UK Kit Malthouse dived into that chat and we reached 2.8 million that time.
0: Blimey for a government minister at the national level to dive into that that's one fantastic and rather brave on his part because I'm sure you have quite a few anonymous accounts who are quite happy to tell him what they thought. We do
1: we do but I think that's the beauty of it the fact that you can be a frontline officer having that interaction with a government minister uh, to make those kind of improvements. Yeah that's incredible. During the main body of Covid last year, we had about 3.8 million reach when we talked about mental health in policing. Officers, you know, day in, day out dealing with the COVID issues on top of everything else were exhausted and they really wanted to use WeCops as that way of discussing how to make things better for themselves, but also kind of improvements that we could do across policing.
0: It strikes me that it's a great mechanism, almost as a litmus test, to see, is everybody else feeling the same thing that I'm feeling? Are they seeing the same things? Because it can be quite an isolating profession in some regards.
1: Yeah, absolutely. What we don't want it to be is an echo chamber. But what we do want it to be is that ability to network, to make connections, to find out what's going on elsewhere, to make friends, and to see where you can take good practice or good learning from others and introduce it into your own force. And we've had good examples of that over the years.
0: You know, if you want to make friends on the internet, there are so much better websites for that, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> but WeCops is brilliant for it. And, uh, and I think you, you, you do meet a wide range of people and that's the beauty of it.
0: Good stuff. The mental health debate, I mean, it's got to be a recurring topic, hasn't it? I mean, I, I get the sense that it's winding its way through pretty much every topic that you're discussing now that we're in the COVID, post-George Floyd type of world. It's hugely stressful for everybody out there.
1: It is. And I think what we're finding is that having a way of discussing those issues in a forum where people are experiencing the same kind of things makes it almost normalised in the sense that you can chat, you can think through ways of dealing with your problems and you can actually understand that it's not just you. And I think that kind of community feel makes people realise that what they're feeling is not unusual.
0: Sounds an awful lot like counselling or therapy.
1: (laughs) I wouldn't say We Cops is counselling or therapy, but it is good fun. And uh, I would encourage people to dip in and, and have a look
0: the problem is when you when it's nine o'clock there it's kind of end of the work day here
1: you're ready for your glass of wine now
0: oh hell yeah but that's generally about lunchtime <laughs> <laughs> i tell my students whiskey's not just for breakfast <laughs> the nice thing about week is simply the range of topics that you guys address every week yeah what have been some of your favourites or the things that you found most enlightening?
1: We had Professor Ian Loder from Oxford University on doing a chat around police legitimacy, and that was in the wake of the death of George Floyd. And I think that was really pertinent to allow British policing to think through the consequences of what had happened and allowed us to be really open and honest around how police officers were feeling here in the UK around what happened but also to have a view on what we were seeing coming out of the states and how that might impact on the way we would deal with uh, the situations that arose so there was protest uh, there were lots of issues here.
0: I think what may surprise a lot of people listening is that the death of George Floyd impacted policing internationally. It wasn't just here within the United States, but you also had issues in London, you had issues in your force, Thames Valley Police. Uh, it, It really became an international challenge.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think together with COVID on top of that, it was tricky for policing. And then I think every force in the country probably had some sort of protest or some sort of march in relation to what had happened. And I think having that ability to talk about that through Twitter, through WeCops, uh, was really valuable for our officers and staff.
0: One of my favourite WeCops was when you had an old whole evening talking about what do people actually enjoy about response policing? And I thought it was just so nice to come and dip into a topic that was positive. Yeah. I was reading through the answers. And a few were, you know, I like to do good things and I like to help the community. There, there were a few answers that looked straight out of a job interview. <laughs> but at least a quarter of them, people were talking, they just enjoy coming to work and hanging around with colleagues and the, and the banter, the banter that is central to emotional survival in policing. And I thought that was just me that really enjoyed that. But it was great to see that other people enjoy that informal social interaction side of just working with a great bunch of colleagues.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the beauty of that chat was it coincided with the National Celebration Week around response policing here in the UK and gave a really good vessel for our officers and staff to really talk about what they loved. And it was was quite emotional to read through people's responses. And just remember why you love policing, why we all come to work to to do what we do. I mean, police officers are the worst for whinging (laughs) and, you know, talking about the amount of work and, and the issues that they have to face day in, day out. But to actually go through and talk through the best bits about your job, I think was really uplifting and it was a really nice way to round that response week up.
0: Yeah, and when you talk about cops whinging, I have to laugh because I remember many years ago, you used to get stickers everywhere that said, I've met the Met.
1: I think they still have them, yeah.
0: Oh, good grief, really? <laughs> I, I often thought that should be replaced by the more honest thing. It's just the badge that says the job's fucked. which seems to be the mantra of British policing generally, right?
1: I'm pretty sure the... Uh... The G7s coming to the UK next month, they're going to Cornwall. And I'm pretty sure there's a lot of banter already on uh, on Twitter and various other social media sites around Met stickers and how they might drive through the very small streets of Cornwall.
0: (laughs) I was in a building in Malaysia when I saw an I've met the Met sticker and I thought, OK, this is just off the charts. This, this, this has gone crazy.
1: Uh, we, don't ha- we, we don't have those in Thames Valley.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you eradicate them on site like yeah. graffiti. Like. <laughs> You've now been with Thames Valley Police for how long?
1: Just over 20 years feels like five minutes, but yeah, nearly 20 years.
0: Just for a couple of seconds, tell us a little bit about Thames Valley for people that aren't familiar with Thames Valley, police outside the country.
1: So Thames Valley is one of the 43 forces in England and Wales, and we cover uh, three counties, Oxfordshire, Berkshire and Buckinghamshire, about 4,000 cops, about 4,000 police staff and a really busy mix of rural and city policing. So we're next to the Met, so we take a lot of their county drugs lines a lot of their problems that come over the borders, but we're also surrounded by lots of the other rural forces, Gloucestershire, Bedfordshire, etc. So
0: when the met are successful in causing displacement to reduce their crime, you're the recipient?
1: Unfortunately, yes, quite often.
0: <laughs> well, we're just passing the wealth around, right?
1: <laughs> you could call it that. I'm not sure that's, uh, that's quite uh, what it is.
0: One of the areas that I know that you've been fascinated with and I wanted to talk to you about is... The policing of domestic abuse. And thinking about this when I I knew I was going to be talking to you, it just struck me that what a pernicious problem this is that seems to be endemic to every single, there isn't a police department that doesn't have to deal with this on a regular basis. We seem sorely unable to figure out what to do about it. And we seem to lack the tools to really have an impact on reducing domestic violence. It seems this incredibly pernicious problem. Have I got that wrong?
1: No, I think you've got it absolutely right. It's what my dad, Professor Grint, would call a wicked problem. You know, there is no answer to domestic abuse. And we've got to just try and think through how we can reduce it, protect. And and I do think it is a public health issue. It's not just for the police to sort out, but it affects every day that every officer comes into work, they will be going to a domestic abuse case when they're on the response team's and, you know, the amount of children that are affected really worries me. The amount of victims that we have that just don't come to the police in the first instance. So, let, you know, we don't know half of what's going on, would, would be my view, um, is a real, real worry.
0: You're in the process of writing a book right now about it that's going to be published by Routledge at some point in the, uh, in the future after this podcast. Do you have a sense of what the kind of key takeaway points are around this area?
1: Yeah, so the book I'm writing is with a couple of other academics and another police officer, and it's a domestic abuse book, which links into the fact that in UK policing, you're now going to have to have a degree on entry or a degree uh, when you join policing, so you'll do a degree as you join And there is a requirement for some good academic review and research around various areas. Uh, And we're writing one on domestic abuse, which should come out uh, end of 2021, beginning of 2022. So it covers everything from the reasons behind domestic abuse, the history of it, criminal justice processes, uh, court proceedings, looking at the new legislation that's coming out around it. So it's really wide and varied. And what we hope it will do is um, give students... uh, and those interested in looking at uh, domestic abuse more generally, a really good overview of the theory, uh, but also the practical piece around policing domestic abuse?
0: Some of the interesting work was done by people like Larry Sherman from the University of Cambridge. Much love to Larry, but that's now decades old. I just don't get the sense that we are investing enough in terms of trying different approaches and finding new ways of dealing with domestic abuse. It seems to have fallen by the wayside while we become more fixated on violent crime as that's creeping up in many places.
1: Yeah, I think you've got a point there and I think when I've been researching pieces that I'm writing, it's quite clear that there are huge academic gaps around domestic abuse. I do think that there is a real value in testing different areas of DA when we're trying to concentrate our resources because we've got so few. We nearly we really do need to know what works and I think there is a lack of research into domestic abuse.
0: Is this an area where we can start legitimately thinking about moving some of the responsibilities to other groups outside of policing? Do you think there's value in that? I have my concerns around this because I'm not entirely convinced that when we hand things to other groups, they do any better than police do. But it's certainly it's in the zeitgeist to be talking about that right now.
1: Yeah, well, I don't think it is just a policing problem, and you know, you see real value when you look at independent domestic violence uh, advisors working in hospitals with, with medics around trying to talk to domestic abuse victims when they come in um, and they've they've been assaulted, uh, and, and the value that they get in terms of disclosure, which is quite often much better than a disclosure that would be given to the police. And I think we've got to do everything we can at each point in a victim's kind of cycle of domestic abuse to think through who is best to deal with them and the problem at that point in time.
0: Does the criminal justice system have any contribution to make to the, the mitigation of domestic violence?
1: Yeah, it absolutely does. And I think there's there's a lot of uh, work going on at the moment around not taking perpetrators through the court process necessarily. So the use of out-of-court disposals, which is quite new and innovative, and some risk around that. So lots of debate around that at the moment. But I think there's also quite a lot of work that could be done within the court processes. So some of the work I've done in uh, Thames Valley is working with one of our resident judges at Aylesbury Crown Court, Judge Sheridan, around fast-tracking domestic abuse into the Crown Court. And the work that that has done has led to significant increases in perpetrators pleading guilty, because the speed at which we're getting into court means that quite often the victim is being prepared to come to court to speak to the jury about what's happened. And and still, in in some circumstances, having the bruises from the offence and being able to show the jury what's happened, the, the faster you get cases through the process, the better.
0: That's quite impressive. If you can get cases all the way to the major court in the land quickly enough that bruises are still showing is phenomenal. I've never heard any court processes move that quickly.
1: No, it is very innovative and it's still a trial in Thames Valley. We would really like to push it out across the country if we can. But basically, we have two court systems in the UK. So you have a magistrate's court which deal with a lower level of offending, and you have a crown court that would deal with more serious offending, so where there is significant injury uh, when you get into the rapes, the murders. We're not talking about that more serious offence, but those cases, the, the grievous bodily harm type cases.
0: Okay, and so in the United States, those would be the more serious aggravated assaults? Right,
1: so, yep. so what we're trying to do is get those into court within a two-week period, which is unheard of in the Crown Court process. Normally it takes six months to get into a Crown
0: Court. Yes, they don't normally work in the area of weeks. I don't know any court systems that work in the area of weeks. You start with months and then end up talking about years and occasionally decades. No,
1: And, and, and it's good work by policing, by the Crown Prosecution Service and by the courts and the judge to, to be able to do this. And we've had it reviewed and evaluated academically. You know, we need to test it more. But I do think there's real value in reducing that attrition because what we've seen significantly through kind of previous academic work around attrition rates is that the victims don't bother because they can't wait that long.
0: Right. It becomes a torturous process yep. where you, you become victimised a second time simply by fighting your way through an impenetrable criminal justice system.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we know from domestic abuse that the kind of coercive control piece, right. the longer you are waiting, the more likely you are to get back together with the perpetrator simply because that is life and that's what it's happens. human
0: nature. Yeah. yeah, yeah. As this is ongoing work, I'm sure it's too early to tell from a quantitative sense. Yep. But are you, are you getting any kind of feeling about whether the increase in pleas the speed of this process is actually having beneficial outcomes for victims domestic violence
1: absolutely and the judge judge sheridan tells a really good story about one victim who wrote to him um, the day after the trial to say the fact that you did this so quickly has had such an impact on the, the small child that she had it was the first time in in five years that they'd not wet the bed And that was after the trial, which put the perpetrator in prison. And it was only because she'd stayed with it that time because it was happening so quickly that actually we got that result. So, you know, a really valuable insight, I suppose, into that kind of victim impact and how it reduces impact, not just on the victim, but the whole family.
0: That's, you know, obviously devastating for the family and marvellous. But now it it leads you to think, okay, so we need to back that up with probably more quantitative evidence to support that. But I think you're potentially onto something really important there because the, the celerity of cases is a huge factor, you know, especially in, uh, when we have to move quickly to protect children.
1: And it's really interesting, actually, that the new government legislation around domestic abuse that's literally come in in the UK in the last couple of weeks focuses on how children are kind of vicarious victims as well. So we're now nationally getting to grips with the impact that they have and what we need to do around that. Have things got worse during COVID? So I think that's a really interesting question. There's loads of really good academics doing a lot of work around that at the moment, around domestic abuse.
0: Yeah, but that stuff's going to be published in about three years' time in the Bangladeshi Journal of Sheep Stealing and Criminology. (laughs) So it's never going to appear in any timely fashion in any mechanism that's useful. And when it does come out, it's going to be buried behind a paywall. So do you have like an answer that human beings can use?
1: (laughs) So I think our worry from a policing perspective, and it's the royal we when when I talk about this, is that we just don't know. I think there is a lot of hidden domestic abuse that hasn't and perhaps will never come out during COVID. What we did see was a reduction in the amount of domestic abuse that was occurring between partners that split up. So where people didn't live together because they couldn't travel, there was a reduction in that type of domestic abuse. But there were increases in domestic abuse where partners were still living together I think there were limited calls, particularly in the first lockdown in the UK, and that was a real worry for policing about why people were not calling us.
0: Yeah, if the partner's not out of the house, there's... no opportunity. There's no opportunity to call. Yeah. And I also wonder if this is one of the limits of police data which is that we can count the number of calls, but it doesn't tell us anything about the severity.
1: Absolutely. And I do worry that we will probably never know the full amount of domestic abuse that's occurred over this time period. And it's one of those things that will come back over coming you know, months and even years around the impact of that, particularly when you look at adverse childhood experiences and you know what's happened to children, uh, what they've seen, what they've heard and, and what the future holds.
0: And and we may not know the impacts of that for a
1: decade. Absolutely, yeah.
0: You've been working with colleagues to also increase the exposure to evidence-based policing within Thames Valley Police. So you took on creating, I believe, the Thames Valley Police Journal, and which is sounds like an incredible amount of work. Can you tell me a bit about that?
1: <laughs> so the TVP Journal is, in my view, brilliant. <laughs> and I say that because I run it and edit it.
0: When you know a bit about evidence-based policing, it's important to know where your biases are.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. But it came about because I was doing my master's degree at uh, Warwick University and I was reviewing um, domestic abuse and I, I wrote my dissertation on domestic abuse, which got published in a journal formally.
0: Can you be published in a journal informally? I'd like, asking, <laughs> asking for a friend.
1: You can come and publish in a TVP journal, that's an informal journal. But having done that, I thought, you know what, I'm not actually sure that my force knows what I've done. You know, I've written this academic Oh, isn't work.
0: that always the story, right?
1: I I've I've shared it, you know, I've published it, but we haven't discussed it internally and I haven't thought about or been able to put my findings into practice in terms of what that means for policing.
0: Trying to get trying to get police officers to read academic journals like asking them to run a marathon in a stab vest.
1: And that's the whole point, but I thought actually, you know, there's a lot of people that in policing that are doing degrees or masters and PhDs but I'm not quite sure how many or who or what they're studying and wouldn't it be valuable if just in our force we had a look at that and asked and saw what kind of content people were writing about because we might be able to make some improvements or change what we're doing as a result of people's recommendations so started to kind of ask and we're really lucky in Thames Valley that the force will pay 50% towards your academic study.
0: Is that for any tertiary level undergraduate yeah, graduate degree?
1: Yeah absolutely as long as it's linked to political in some form your professional development
0: that's fantastic yeah
1: very few forces do it and we're really lucky that's one of the things that hasn't kind of disappeared with austerity but it just means we are putting people through the Cambridge course that I know you teach on sometimes we have people on what was the high potential development scheme doing uh, master's degrees but we're not taking the learning and we're not doing anything with it So started the journal and just collated five or six articles to start with, with a couple of colleagues.
0: And were these from colleagues just within Thames Valley, Police?
1: Yeah. So it's just Thames Valley. It's all just Thames Valley officers and staff. And we said, if you are doing a degree or a master's and you want to give us a shortened version of your dissertation or a really good essay, we'll have a look at it. And we set up like a formal journal. We asked for peer reviewers. And I was absolutely amazed at the amount of people that wanted to get involved and be peer reviewers. And they're really harsh. (laughs) probably harsher than, (laughs) than formal reviewers but they do a really good job our peer reviewers and we'll look through people's articles give them really good feedback and then we collate the journal and I say it's the Royal We it's a a couple of colleagues of mine Lee Barnum and Rob France we put it together we put it through our comms team to make sure that we're not saying any anything that's unethical that we're not so you don't get sued right (laughs) yeah absolutely and we published it so we published it internally to start with just so just for Thames Valley a private journal and the feedback was phenomenal and our our staff our officers and staff were just giving us so much good feedback about how valued they felt that their work was being shared how great it was that they could read something that they didn't have to you know pay for access that it was relevant to their own force it was about people doing work in their own area of business I get excited (laughs) about this (laughs) yeah
0: I can tell What I love about this is that in so many places I go to, there seems to be a streak of anti-intellectualism running through policing, and I'm sure you run into that as well. But this seems to be an outlet for Thames Valley Police Nerd Central, to really kind of find their space right
1: yeah and the more we do it the more we find in the sense that there are people doing all sorts and what we also have is a lot of academics coming to tvp like they'll probably go to you know a number of forces asking to do research in force and we now have a vessel where we can collate that research as well so it's not only what our own staff are doing in their own time it's what we have either commissioned or what academics have come to us asking to do as well
0: one of the things I started doing many years ago when I worked uh, started working with police departments here in the US and having graduate students, especially working with say Philadelphia, was that every time they did a piece of work and you know, we would send it away to the, the journal of we'll publish eventually, I also asked them to write one or two pages in English that we would send to the police department because they collaborated with us, they'd taken the risk, they'd given us data the very least we could do was to give them something back that was meaningful and useful that was written in English. And what was interesting from an academic perspective was it was often harder for the students to write that concise two pages in English without resorting to academic language or statistical talk. I say, no, you've got to pitch this at people who actually are driving a police car around North Philadelphia right now, and that makes it interesting and readable to them. That will actually engage with their professional sense of value and that's incredibly difficult writing for academics to do so you're also it sounds to me like you're really also driving a translation piece as well as just you know replicating research yes
1: yes we are and we accept full academic articles like you would see in a in a formal journal but we also say to our officers and staff you know if you're just doing a literature review and you want to share what you've read then write something around that And also, if you just want to write a practice note, so if you've done a little bit of a project on Troll that you want to write about and share, write that in as well, because that's how we can then pick it up and people might want to do a bit more research around it. So we're kind of catering for all levels, really, to make sure that everybody can engage.
0: How does it feel to be now a journal editor and to be publishing when your dad is a professor as well, I mean, are you having some degree of oversight and critique from above coming to you?
1: He's not allowed to mark my work. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, he, he. My dad has been involved in um, police leadership work, so it has been tricky on occasion, but uh, he's a very good supporter of mine. So he's a professor of leadership, just retired actually from uh, Warwick University, Warwick Business School.
0: What's his first name? Keith Grint. Good stuff. Uh, How many issues of the journals do you have now?
1: So we've got six volumes. We publish twice a year. They have about five or six articles in each. It's a lot of work in the sense that you are having to, A, encourage people to write... then collate that, get it edited, get it peer-reviewed, put it together, get it checked, and then share it and sell it. So we share it on Twitter, we share it on LinkedIn. It's in the uh, International Association of Chief Police's library. So we're spread out across the world.
0: Oh, they're never going to read it. (laughs) Oh,
1: they promise me they are. (laughs) (laughs) But it's open access. And
0: when you say sell it, you mean advertise, because it's free and it's available to everybody online, right?
1: Absolutely, and that's exactly what I wanted it to be.
0: You've also been involved with the College of of policing, getting involved in one of their national publications, Going Equipped.
1: Yeah, so Going Equipped came about because of the TVP journal. So the college saw what Thames Valley were doing and and liked it and thought we ought to have a national version of this. We need to have a mechanism to share what people are studying, what people are learning. So they asked me to be editor in chief, which sounds a very grand title for what I actually do. But we've just started that. So there was an edition last year in August, and we've just published edition two in April 2021. called Going Equipped. It's a a magazine, a publication written by policing for policing. And again, it's pulling the long academic reads, but also really short practice notes around all sorts of areas of business uh, from across policing nationally.
0: How often do those come out?
1: So again, they're likely to come out twice a year, spring and autumn. And if you are working in policing in the UK, then you can absolutely write for Going Equipped.
0: Do you think they're going to be useful for people internationally as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's open access, so you can just go online to have a look at it. But what it's doing is sharing some of the academic work that's going on, some of the experiments, some of the policing pilots, uh, and also some of the day-to-day business. So what's it like to be a forensic practitioner in the UK? Uh, What's it like to um, deal with a romance fraud investigation? How do you deal with somebody that goes no comment in interview? Those kind of things.
0: Good stuff. The journals that you're editing, what's nice about them is you have a, they come out every twice a year, you have quite a degree of currency. People are writing for them and then it's appearing in the next issue. It's going to be more topical than what you get with many academic journals, which is an article takes three years to do the research, six months to do the writing, six months to get approved. What am I saying, six months? Two years to get approved, and then is in a queue for two years yours is much more current. So it's going to reflect what's happening in policing. Where do you think policing is going in the next year or two? I, I mean, for example, I know that British numbers are, are down significantly. But as we emerge from COVID, if enough people get their asses vaccinated, we're going to start seeing more emergence and return to business as usual. But British policing numbers are really down, aren't they?
1: They are. There is a, a uplift programme currently. So An introduction of around 10,000 new officers coming along. But what that means is you get significant numbers of brand new officers who don't have the experience, who need to be trained, who need the kit and all the other things that go with a brand new officer. And you know, what we are seeing is that crime is getting more complex, more complicated. The crime types are changing significantly. So just in Thames Valley, I've just introduced a new digital investigation and intelligence team because every investigation has a, has a digital feed to it now, whether that's on social media, whether that's through activity that the, the criminal, the perpetrator has used. And, and what we don't have is the knowledge or experience to deal with that. So I do think the next few years are going to be tricky in terms of trying to ensure our staff have the right knowledge and experience to deal with the crimes as they change.
0: Does any force have enough puppy walkers to actually be able to take all these uh, new shiny recruits out and look after them?
1: Well that's it, you've got to have a tutor constable here in the UK.
0: Field training officer here in the US.
1: To look after uh, individual officers as they come through and you've got to train those people as well so they know how to be a tutor. So it all has consequences, it's not just simply about getting new numbers and getting new bobbies on the beat, it's actually much more complicated than
0: that. And it's going to have other implications right the way through personnel and promotions and a whole bunch of other areas that I'm sure haven't been anticipated yet.
1: Yeah, and there's huge programs of work, both through the College of Policing, but forces, individual forces, thinking through those consequences. And and like I said earlier on, the new officers all have to have a degree or will be doing a degree as they join policing. And part of that degree is to understand evidence based practice. So they will be doing research as well. And the complications around that, the consequences of trying to find the data within policing will be tricky to understand, but also, um, I think, could potentially bring us some real value when you look at the work we've done with the journal.
0: I'm guessing I know the answer considering that you've published academically, professionally, you're writing a book and you're editing two journals. So I suspect I know the answer to this question before it's coming. But do you see value in this push for higher educational standards within policing?
1: I do. And there's been lots of debate around that. There's always value in increasing education. And for policing, I think that actually what it will bring is a real breadth of knowledge and understanding and also for our officers and staff as they come into policing to really see how you understand what works and what doesn't and that actually everything's not necessarily doomed to succeed and if things don't work then you ought to stop what you're doing, rethink it, try something different and actually the best practice piece might only be this best practice for a very short period of time because the culture, the, the society changes, and, and therefore the evidence changes, and you might need to change what you're doing.
0: I interviewed Sir Dennis O'Connor, who joined policing about three weeks after Robert Peel created it. <laughs> <laughs> I love Dennis. But what's been interesting about the last decade or two is the pace with which research has picked up in policing. I think if you joined when he did in the 60s, you could have pretty much stuck with doing the same thing for 20 years not because it was right or wrong, but because there was nothing to suggest replacing it or doing it better. I think those times have gone now. It seems like we need a continual professional practice like you find in nursing, like you find in medicine. And this idea that what you pick up in the academy is going to see you through, or you know, in, the, in the police college, is going to see you through the next 20 or 30 years, I think is is now farcical.
1: The world changes so quickly. We have moved on from that position. And I do think that in order to be really good officer, you have to make time to understand what's changing and why it's changing and what impact you're having. And to understand what impact you're having, you've got to understand why you're doing it.
0: So here's the $64,000 question, except for it's not. One of the things I've noticed is that there's an increase in the numbers of new police officers coming in with higher education. But looking at the United States to the UK, it seems like there's an increasing pay disparity. I used to be a little hesitant about the pay standards here in the United States but they still keep creeping up and I just don't see that in the UK at the moment. So what I'm worried about is hiring a lot of recruits who are going to leave after a year or two because we simply can't pay them enough.
1: I can see that and I think that we do have to think carefully, the rule we, policing, about how we encourage people to stay, how we make the best use of their knowledge and their practice and what they've done previously and how we look after them because that's what's key here.
0: I will say this it you know you're writing a book you're editing two journals full-time work as a superintendent black belt karate you've got a gazillion things going on I'm sure you kids have no idea what you look like so I'm reluctant to take you away for any more time than this but for spending your time with me this evening and Sharing a glass of wine with me, thanks ever so much. It's nice to see you, Katie.
1: Thanks, Jerry. Appreciate it.
0: That was episode 36 of Reducing Crime, recorded online in May 2021. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore Reducing Crime. The transcript of this and every episode can be found at reducingcrime.com slash podcast. There you can also find links to the two publications Katie mentions in the episode. If you're an instructor planning a class or two around any of the podcasts, DM me at jerry underscore Ratcliffe for a free spreadsheet of multiple choice questions. Be safe and best of luck.